And you may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're looking at verses 32 through 39. I was recently watching a talk by Sinclair Ferguson on three lessons that he's learned from 42 years of ministry. And he says, um, he reminded me, right? He referenced his appreciation for William Steele and um, specifically referenced the book, The Work of the Pastor, which has been an encouragement to me in the past. And he mentioned that every pastor should read that book every year at least. So I have failed to do that, but I did pick it up for the third time. And I enjoyed it once again, just a reminder of um, our primary calling as pastors. But one of the things he points out is this. I thought it was relevant to this passage this morning. He's discussing church revival. He says, there will soon be evidence that God is at work. And the devil will rouse himself too. The first sign may be that believing folk who may have grown cold and worldly, will begin to loosen their purse strings out of thankfulness to God for his living word. And the finances will improve. This is the least of the signs, but it is almost always the first to appear in the reviving of a church. I found that encouraging and fascinating. That one sign of revival... One of the first signs of revival, generally speaking, is a generous church, a generous community, generous giving. So last week we mentioned just why church membership is important. We said that was part one, this would be part two. And really, I could have tried to pack it all into one sermon. It would have been the three points that church membership reveals our commitment to adopt God's convictions Church membership reveals our eagerness to accept God's restrictions. And then lastly, church membership reveals our willingness to obey God's obligations. But really, as I began to study, I I decided there was plenty of landmines to step on in this section. And so it, it might help us to walk through it a little more slowly, carefully. And in fact, we're going to break this one into two sermons as well and spend two weeks on this passage, really the the last few verses on its own, and I'll explain why when we get there. But there's this, uh, we we tend, if, if last week wasn't controversial enough, talking about membership in an age when most churches, maybe most churches don't practice that or have anything like that. Uh, This is also controversial, the idea of money and uh, what we give to the church. We either tend to overemphasize it, whether it be in a growing church, a healthy church, or in a shrinking church. We we can overemphasize money in both areas, right? Always worried about it, always thinking about it, or always asking for it. Or we can just blissfully ignore it altogether, Act like it's not a big deal. When I was uh, in my early stages of of strategizing for this church plant, I I briefly 
and I'd say very briefly, but I did briefly toy with the idea of not taking an offering during the service uh, to show sort of visitors that money was not the driving motivation here. Uh, there would be an offering box somewhere in the back. You could drop off your, your offering there. I know several churches that do that. Um, and, and so it seemed like a considerate thing to do, but open your Bible at any point and you won't get very far before you come to the theme of money and possessions. Uh, it's a frequent theme. And because of that, we need to spend adequate time talking about these things. Now, we shouldn't shy away from them, as uncomfortable as it makes all of us. There's something that God has to teach us here. And so I've, I've called what's taking place in uh, Israel under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, I've called it a revival in previous sermons. They rebuilt the temple they followed that up, well, they started with the altar so that they might make right sacrifices to God. They rebuild the temple, then they followed that up with rebuilding the walls, and now they're experiencing reformation. Reformation in their values, reformation in their habits, the things that they focus on. And so the community has elevated the word of God in their minds, and they've made worship central in their fellowship. And both of these principles really contribute to their interest in giving money for temple worship. And we give money to things that we most value. And oftentimes those things are temporary and fleeting. It reveals that our hearts are firmly planted, really honoring these earthly gods. And so a typical budget reveals that we value our homes, our transportation, and entertainment. What we give to the church is indicative of the longing that we have for the glory of God. So it's very telling how we spend our money and how much of it we give for worship or for serving him and his kingdom purposes. I, I have in your outline, I, I'm not sure what happened. You got an earlier version of, of possibly the main idea, um, but I revised it. But it says, genuine spiritual revival typically occurs in conjunction with a generous increase in our giving. Genuine spiritual revival typically occurs in conjunction with a generous increase in our giving. Taken from William Steele's example, his anecdote, as well as the example we have here in Nehemiah of what's taking place among the people. So before we read this passage, verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation that you show us your heart, that you reveal to us how we might glorify and honor you. Lord, you've made us for this. And so we want to... Be attentive to your word. We want to worship you even as we sit under the preaching of your word. And so oftentimes we think about just listening and then applying it later on. Going home, reflecting on it. But Lord, there is something that's taking place as your word is preached in the heart of true believers filled with your spirit in which you are speaking to us through your word. 
and which we can be transformed and changed even now. And it's not something we do privately on our own, but Lord, even something that takes place corporately and among a community so that we might enjoy the benefits of genuine revival. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and honored as we reflect upon this passage. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers who will not neglect the house of our God, or we will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline is to commit a commitment to give money regularly, a commitment to give money regularly. We'll see this in verses 32 through 34. Here in this community, everyone commits to giving a third part of a shekel annually for the work of the temple. Now, this was the same amount among the rich and the poor. It doesn't appear to have been, in fact, a a massive sacrifice uh, for for most of the community, this amount. It was, here's the thing to know, though, this third of a shekel is in addition to the offerings that follow. Right? This, is, this is sort of a, a, a preliminary gift. Um, and it was a meaningful offering because what it represented was it reflected, and this is based on Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, where they describe this in more detail. Um, it's a reflection of God's redemption of each member of the covenant community. So there's an atoning element or an atonement um, aspect to this In fact, in Exodus, it calls it the atonement money. And um, 
And so it wasn't about the amount, but what it represented, right? That you belong to this community, and therefore you're, you're a contributing part of the community. Um, now, the decree of Darius back in Ezra chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, provided funds for this purpose. It provided funds for the service of the temple, specifically, uh, to give them whatever was needed. But obviously, Israelites could not rely upon foreign kings to support their worship indefinitely. They needed to be prepared to provide for themselves. And so that's, that's what's taking place here. Um, interestingly, also in Exodus 30, verse 13, you find that the, the sh- what's mentioned there is half of a shekel. Here, it's a third of a shekel. And so some have used that discrepancy to suggest that maybe the people's hearts here are, are not as, as um, motivated to, to give to the temple service as those previously. Um, I don't take that approach. I don't see that anywhere in the context. Uh, this could be that Nehemiah refers to an annual gift, as is very clear, year by year, they're to give this. But in Exodus, it actually seems to be a particular gift tied to the census. And as they took the census, they, they were to give that offering. So as they were counted, and it really wasn't every member of the community in that section there, but it's everyone who was old enough uh, to be counted among the army, right? And so they had those who were counted were to give half of a shekel. And that seems to be a particular gift. It also could be just a different, um, a different monetary system, right? That under Persia, you have, you have a different... Um, different amounts and weights and measures. And so the idea was that maybe they were trying to change the gift to line it up with an Aramaic zuz, I believe that's how you pronounce it, which was just roughly a third of a Israelite shekel. And so that might have just been to simply, or to simplify uh, the gift for each member. It could also imply that there was some flexibility with the percentage of giving, even in the Old Testament, based upon the overall economic health, and that, they were, that they were recognizing the situation after the exile left people in, in a state of, of you know, need uh, where, where, there, where the gift could be reduced um, accordingly. I'm not really sure which is accurate there, which, which we would go with. I, I kind of lean toward the idea that... that Nehemiah is talking about really a, a different thing. It's an annual gift. They're taking an obligation that was a particular thing and making it annual. But there is clearly a connection between the way those uh, gifts are expressed and, and given. So in addition, there was a regular wood offering. And that's what we find um, in verse 34. This regular wood offering It says, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So what's this about? Well, the altar uh, was going to be burning continually, not only taking offerings as as families brought their sacrifices, their animals to sacrifice, but the fire was actually... uh, said to burn continually, according to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. So here's what's happening. They're, they are taking upon themselves this allotment. They're allotting a responsibility to ensure that they didn't run out of wood in the temple. 
Uh, and there's actually nothing in the uh, Pentateuch about this. So when it talks about giving these sacrifices and offerings, it's just assumed that they have a supply of wood provided. Right? And so they, so at that time, there was enough Levites present where it was just their responsibility periodically to go out and gather the wood and bring it in. Um, but now, obviously, that had become a hardship. And it's either because the number of Levites has reduced since the exile. As they come back, they, they need help and support from the community in order to provide enough wood for these sacrifices and to keep it burning continually. Uh, we don't know. But, the, but what happens is they, they've added their names to this pool where lots are cast to determine who would collect wood when it was needed. And this would seem to also indicate that those who might not have been able to provide as much financial support to the community could give time. They could, they could give of their service. Uh, families that had a, would have had an opportunity here to contribute who otherwise might not have been able to. I, I like this quote from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He says this, if, if you want to build a ship don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So we can think of this as like just another task. Go out and gather wood. We need it, so I'm going to assign you guys to it. Um, the people understood that their priests would not be able to fulfill their duties without the wood, but this wood offering was not previously required of them. So they could have said, look, that's not, our, that's not our deal. Sorry, you don't have as many people. It's your job. It's not mine. And if, that, if that's what it was only, if it was just about that, about following a command. But it was more than that. It was about supplying what was needed to worship. It was about what was, what was needed to contribute to the fellowship and the service of the temple. And so this annual offering for temple service was a potentially lighter obligation, but right that the, the offering that we just talked about, the third of a shekel, potentially that's a lighter obligation, but here they voluntarily take upon themselves something new that they didn't have before. So clearly it's not that these people are growing negligent of their duties. And they're not trying to avoid responsibility. It reflects, I think, a, a greater flexibility than maybe we oftentimes realize. But during the Israelite monarchy, there were enough Israelites or Levites to collect the wood themselves. And, and even under Joshua, they, they actually assigned this task to the Gibeonites. Remember, the Gibeonites were the ones that lied in order to enter into a treaty with Israel. So one of the things that, that Joshua did was he said, well, you guys are going to be wood collectors. You're going to supply all this wood for the temple service. So now that they've come back from exile, they've, they're, they're clearly understaffed and they don't have Gibeonites to collect wood for them anymore. But it reveals this readiness for them to serve, not only to contribute financially, but also to give of their time. And here's what I, uh, what I want to focus on in this section here. It's this idea of giving regularly, having a routine of giving. Uh, I, I enjoy reading books on productivity, and one of the themes that I come across over and over again is the importance of developing a routine. 
for pretty much anything that you want to focus on. So you should have a routine that triggers your focus. If it's work, you want to focus on that. You have a routine that gets you into the mindset that you need for work. If it's that you want to focus your attention on your children when you get home, well then you might develop a routine of putting away the phone, of putting away your stuff and 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 putting on, you know, your your cardigan, your home cardigan like Mr. Rogers or something so that you have a routine that puts you in the mindset of now I'm now I'm home, right? I'm interacting with them, I'm focusing. I think there's some truth to this. And some recommend really long and elaborate routines. At most, it's, it's a simple, short method that just enters into that mode. But the problem that most of us have is that we've developed habits uh, that don't align with our goals. We've developed routines that lead us in a direction away from glorifying God and honoring Him. You know, we've had, we have a habit of just grabbing our, our, our drink from the, from the fridge and sitting on the couch and relaxing and ignoring everything else that's going on. So this opportunity, uh, one, one author I've read recently, Greg McCown on essentialism, he says this, this opportunity is that we can develop new abilities that eventually become instinctive. Right? That's what, when you develop a habit, it's just instinctive. You're not really thinking about it, you're just doing it. The danger is that we may develop routines that are counterproductive. And so we make routines, here's the point, we make routines to commit ourselves to do whatever it is we value most. Most of us are required to follow certain routines at work. Your job has ensured that you focus on what they want you to focus on by requiring you to follow those routines. And you do it because you want to keep your job. When it comes to worship, our entire service follows a consistent pattern. There's not, we don't sing the same songs, but we sing two songs, right? And we have our call to worship. We have our opening prayer, two songs. Uh, you know, we, we just, we follow this throughout this, this whole liturgy, which is a, a pattern. It's a routine because we want to value the things that we find emphasized in a corporate worship service in scripture. So an orderly liturgy is conducive to putting ourselves in a worshipful frame of mind, maintaining it throughout the service. So, right, some churches, they, they practice this concept by even going further, following the church calendar. Well, there's nothing sacred about various seasons, uh, at least I don't believe so, but focusing upon them regularly can serve to highlight what we find most important, right, the most important themes and events. For instance, we do acknowledge and celebrate here Christmas. That's a season. We don't have to do that around December 25th every year, but we do, and we, we, we think it's important that we think about the incarnation of Christ. And, but we shouldn't ignore that during the other parts of the year. Some people celebrate Lent or Good Friday or Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday or Pentecost. You can, you can go further than we go here at this church, but the idea that I'm trying to say is we have routines, and we make routines out of the things we want to focus on, and this happens in the church as well. So if that's the case, then we should think about having a routine of giving. We ought to prioritize our giving by following a pattern 
in our lives, right? The portion of the service where we collect your gifts and offerings might serve as that routine for you. That's, we call it a, an element of worship, so we include it in the worship service for you to do. And, and, and again, sometimes that's the part where we check out and we're not paying attention. We're like, I'm just waiting for the song. It's not what we hope happens, right? That we hope that even if you're not putting something in the offering bag, that you're still engaged in, the, in worshiping God and asking him to give wisdom as we steward the resources that he's provided. Another example might be that each time you get your paycheck, the first thing you do is make your contribution to the church. I've heard some people say this. Like I, I, it's, it's my first fruits, right? I want to take the, the first thing I do with that money is I want to give to the church before I spend it elsewhere. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, others do this when they pay their bills, right? They, lay, they sit down and they pay their bills, and the first thing they do is they write out their check for the for the contribution to the church. Now, a growing number have made it automatic in giving online. But again, if we give online, that's, that's fine, as long as our hearts are not completely disengaged during the worship service. And we even include a little line there about showing you how to give online. In, you can, so one time you can pull out your phone in the worship service, right? Because you can engage in the same thing that we're doing physically. The point is that we should be developing routines to give. One method is not necessarily better than the other. We're not going to compare methods or routines and say that one's, oh, that one's the best. We should all follow it, make a law out of it. As long as it helps us to give regularly, we do see that as a pattern throughout scripture, that a Christian gives regularly. Jesus was clear. We should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but he also said that we should give to God the things that are God's. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just as we pay our taxes right on schedule, so we should give money to the church regularly. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that your giving needs to be weekly or monthly or quarterly. It could be annually, but it's regular. Paul directed the churches of Galatia and Corinth to take up a collection on the first day of the week. And so we do too, right? We take up a collection on the first day of the week uh, in the same pattern and habit of the early church. So, of course, giving regularly is not the only thing that we should consider. We should also make a commitment to give money generously. And that's what you find in verses 35 through 37. When the people gathered their fruit and grain, and then when they made their bread, they have their dough, they have wine and oil, they are to make an offering. They were to ensure that they only offered the choicest pieces of what they gathered. And they were to bring the best of their bunch. So these are the perfectly ripened bananas, not the ones that are, green, that are so green or brown that you wouldn't even think about eating them. It's the ones that you want to grab first. It's the first thing you want. It's the one that's the most tantalizing. Now, ultimately, all of these gifts were given to the Levites and priests to sustain them. So essentially what they were doing was they were taking their basket of fruit and vegetables and their grain and their loaves of bread and their offer, well, their dough. They didn't actually cook it ahead of time, but they brought all of that to, to the temple. And they left it there for them to enjoy. And God did not want the people to give 
their spiritual leaders merely leftovers or things that they didn't really care about or want. The Israelites were also to give the firstborn of their sons, their cattle, their herds, and their flocks. Any firstborn sons in here? You're mine. No, I'm kidding. That, that might sound shocking, right? Like they're, they're to give their firstborn of their sons? What does that mean? Well, the idea was that they were, they were honoring God with opening the womb in their family, right, of that firstborn and of allowing, and they, and they honored him in such a way by redeeming those sons for a financial gift. So they would make a, an offering to the temple. In other cases, you actually have examples where that child is given for temple service. And it's not a sacrifice. We're not, we're not killing our, our firstborn sons. But they're given to the temple for service. You see, you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 1, an example of Hannah giving and offering Samuel to temple service. So this uh, amounted to an additional financial contribution. In most cases, families would redeem their firstborn son for a, that financial contribution. There was also some animals that they could redeem financially as well. For instance, a donkey, which most of them would have used to travel. They wanted to keep any donkey that was born, and so they, had, they would take a lamb instead. That's just one example of this. So you could redeem your son and certain animals. But a friend of mine, uh, he serves at a, a PCA in, in Manhattan, Kansas, and one of the things they do, and just as I was thinking about the bringing your dough to the church, this, this came to mind. They actually, for their communion bread, they, um, they bake it. Families, they have a rotation of families who bake the bread and bring that communion bread every, every Sunday. And so it's just one example. It's certainly not a requirement of how we should honor this idea, um, but it, you know, we might even think about the Sunday snacks that we do as, as one way of, of applying this text. It's another example of allowing families to contribute voluntarily in a variety of ways. Right? We're not going through the membership role and requiring you to do this. This isn't a law, but it's a voluntary opportunity for you to contribute to the needs of the congregation, or you, you might say the wants in this case, because you, know, you don't have to have snacks there, but it certainly enriches our fellowship to have that. Maybe even adds a few pounds. All right, so we should become generous givers. And so the Passover was the, the first feast of the calendar year for Israel. They, they spent the week reflecting upon God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. And it's interesting that the first fruits of harvest immediately follows, or the celebration of first fruits immediately follows Passover. It's the day after the Sabbath. It's actually, in fact, kind of part of that Passover week. And so these first fruits are the day after the Sabbath. In other words, they offered their first fruits on Sunday in the Old Testament. They pointed forward ultimately, to the first fruits of Christ's resurrection, as Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And according to Colossians 2, 20 through 22, the sacrifices of the ceremonial law were shadows that pointed to Christ. After his first coming, there was no more need to make an offering for atonement. So it would be idolatrous to go back to animal sacrifices 
at this time, and to assume that we are justified or made right with God through obedience to an Old Testament law is to replace Christ with an expired command. Instead of trusting in Christ for our salvation, in that sense, we are trusting in our works. And so Paul very emphatically condemns that in Colossians 2. So we've discussed that giving should be regular, giving should be generous. Next week we'll consider the third point, a commitment to give money proportionally. So we'll focus on whether the tithe is a requirement under the new covenant. Some of you have asked me about that. If you've taken the new members class, I briefly addressed that, but I want to take some a lengthier amount of time and, and address that matter and kind of take in the various texts so be a little more of a, of a broad overlooking or, or overview of scripture on the tithe. But here's how I want to conclude this morning. In his book, The Giving, The Giving, or sorry, The Book of Giving by Pierce Taylor Hibbs, he explains why we give. And he says this, God is the grand giver. All of life, in a sense, is turning us to this truth and conforming us to it. Everything we experience draws us closer to God's giving circle, where giver, gift, and recipient, and he's really speaking there of the Trinity, dance and exchange, constantly giving, constantly receiving, constantly being a gift. In other words, God is in this context of constantly giving and receiving, and he invites us into that same circle of giving. God's most generous gift, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You cannot look higher than the gospel to the idea of generosity. Generous giving from Romans 8.32. And so we become givers by receiving the greatest gift of the Son and then giving our lives to him in gratitude. And so let us do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this example here of a community that is experiencing reformation and revival and as they do so they bring reform into their practices into the way they worship in the temple and lord there's maybe heart changes taking place there's physical uh, routines that are that are put in place that are established and Lord, there's, a, there's principles here that we need to adopt and apply ourselves. Lord, we, we too want to recognize the importance of giving, not just occasionally, not just when it crosses our mind, but regularly, making it even a habit of giving, that we would, we would instinctively recognize that whatever we have received comes from your hand, by your grace. And so all that we have belongs to you. We haven't earned it. You've given it to us, and so we give back out of gratitude a portion of that. 
Lord, help us to understand what that means, what that looks like in our context, but ways in which we might need to change our own patterns of living and our own patterns of giving. But Lord, help us to ultimately to look to the cross, look to the greatest gift of your Son who gave up the riches of heaven to enter into the rags of humanity so that we might ultimately be united to you and enter into that glory and rejoice for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray that even as we gather together corporately that we would see this as a taste of that. That you have given us something of a precursor in the worship that we enjoy here. So may we contribute to that joyfully, generously. May we participate in it enthusiastically for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. We'll sing Abide With Me, hymn number 159.